السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمدا عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد Welcome to another lesson with QP and inshallah ta'ala as we mentioned in our previous lesson today inshallah ta'ala we will begin with the tafsir of a new surah and that is the tafsir of surah al-tariq uh, but before we begin as you know the last couple of lessons what we did is we did a couple of specials uh, so a couple of weeks back we did the special on ilm uh, al-rasm which is the science of quranic script and we went through um, you know we went through a number of the principles that are used in Quranic script and the way that the scholars of Islam uh, derived from the, the way that the script was done from the time of the Prophet وسلم, numerous principles and qawaid and then last week we did uh, or in the last lesson we did the sciences of the six Quranic or the six sciences of Quranic reading and how they kind of come together and work together and how a person uses them when it comes to studying the Book of Allah in terms of its recitation and memorization. And um, I went over the last uh, couple of lessons in terms of the comments and so on. I, I missed a couple of the questions, I think, uh, from, for example, the, the class on Ilm al-Rasm, which was the Quranic script. Uh, one of the things that you will notice as you read the Quran, if you pay attention uh, to the Quran uh, and its script as you're reading, so for example, if you're reading throughout the whole Quran, if you're very, uh, very conscious of the script, and you 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 analyze it very carefully and you look at it quite carefully, you will see differences in the way that these words are written. And sometimes what you will find, and this was one of the points that someone asked in the class um, or in the comments, a couple from the that, that session on the science of rasm and script. One of the things that you will find is regarding the same word written in two different ways in the Qur'an. So it's the same word and it is written two different ways in the Qur'an. And that was one of the things that I didn't really mention and go into because I didn't want to make the class too confusing uh, and too difficult. Um, we kind of just focused on, for example, just the general principles of you know addition or deletion or uh, you know just some of the other things that we mentioned. Uh, because they're kind of like easier to, to deal with. However, you will find within the Quran, someone gave the example of the word Aqsa in the Quran and how it is written in two different ways. One is with the Alif and the other one is with the Ya, the ya uh, script, uh, which is what we call the Alif um, an Alif also, uh, but it's written and scripted as a Ya. So it looks like a Ya, but it's actually an Alif. And so you find it written both ways in the Quran. You find it with the alif, with the straight up alif, aqsa. And you find it after the sad with the ya, which is an alif, but it's scripted to look like a ya. Another example of this would be uh, the word Quran. Quran, if you look at the word Quran in the Quran, it is written in two different ways. It is written in two different ways. And so if you look at these, uh, these words, you will find sometimes the same word is scripted in two different ways in the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there are some benefits to that. Uh, one of those benefits is, as we said, and as the position of uh, the scholars is, that the Quran and the script is tawqifi, it is restricted by textual evidence. 
So therefore the way that the Quran was scripted and it is written has always continued to remain the same from the time that it was first written in the time of the Prophet until our time today. And one of the unfortunate things that's happened um, I think over the last century or so that in some countries and in some places where they scripted the Quran, they changed that script. I don't know if that's because they were of the position that it's ijtihadi or whether it was due to a lack of knowledge and oversight, I'm not really quite sure. But in certain places, and I've seen certain Qur'ans like this, and alhamdulillah in those countries, I think certain efforts have since been made to ensure that that's those uh, same types of mistakes are not made. So that's something which you, which you will see. And so people came and they changed the script of the Book of Allah simply because they thought it doesn't make sense, it's too difficult, people are becoming confused. And so inshallah they had good intentions, but they changed something which shouldn't have been changed. And that's also due to a lack of knowledge. And it's due to a lack of knowledge because as we said, these six sciences, the ones that we mentioned yesterday, so Tajweed, Qira'at, Rasm, Dabt, Addul Ay, and Waqf al Ibtida, these six sciences are usually studied together and they complement one another. And so often what you will find, as we mentioned, even the examples in that we gave in the last lesson, when we were combining these six Qira'at uh, and we were going through, for example, Surah, uh, Surah Al-Fatiha and Surah Al-Ikhlas and so on, sometimes the changes that you have there or the way that the Qur'an is scripted is to allow for multiple Qira'at. Now we know in our time, relatively speaking, Qira'at is one of those sciences that isn't widely studied or known. And so someone may come and change the script of a word, not realizing that that script is that script in that way because it's allowing for multiple Qira'at to take place. For example, the word Maliki, if we were to write it with a straight up alif in the way that we would write normal Arabic now in our time, writing Maliki in that way would mean, therefore, that anyone that doesn't read it as Maliki, they read it as Maliki, which is the majority of the ten, they no longer, that script doesn't really work for them anymore. And that's not necessarily like the end of the world in that sense. But at the same time, the Quran, the Quran in terms of his script allowed for all of these Qira'at to take place. That's one of the beauties of the script of the Quran. And that's why the Quran allows all of these scripts to take place. One of the other things that the script did is that it showed that all of the lahajat, all of the ahruf of the Quran, all of the dialects that the Arabs used to speak, because we know that the Quran was revealed in seven what we call huruf, seven ahruf. And each one is distinct from the other, or not distinct from the other, but in each one there are differences from the other because it captured and encompassed all of the different lahajat and dialects that the Arabs knew of in the time of the Prophet so sometimes even the most uh, smallest of tribes in Arabia, the smallest of tribes of Arabia, that's not a major tribe, it's not predominant like Quraysh and so on, but the smallest of tribes, you will find sometimes that one of their scripts or one of the ways that they would read is still contained in the Book of Allah Azza wa And that is from also from the beauty of the Quran and the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It encompassed all of those different lahajat and dialects of the Arabs and that remained within a script. And there are examples of this. Uh, if you were to study this science in more detail, you would see some of this taking place. And so the Quran allows for this. Right? It allows for this. And so that's why one of the, um, one of the, um, you know, one of the, the mistakes that's made uh, is the misunderstanding over script in that we should do something which is easier or make it easier to read. And then what they end up dismissing is, for example, a whole number of qira'at. And so they don't realize that these sciences are complementary. And that's why, you know, these scholars, like they, they take out time and effort to teach 
and to promote these sciences of Islam, uh, you know, in, in, in their in their complementary form, mentioning and, and, and studying them and teaching them all together, rather than each one distinct uh, from the other or each one individually from the other, or just teaching one, for example, like Tajweed, and dismissing the others. It's very important to remember this because otherwise we make mistakes without realizing that they're major mistakes, that these, you just mess up the whole thing simply because you, you're trying to make things easy for certain people and you're just looking at, for example, a certain segment from a certain country or a certain culture who maybe for them Arabic isn't their first language, so they're struggling to read a certain script and a certain form. And so what the person comes to do with the best of intentions is I will make it easy for people to read the Quran and connect with the Book of Allah not realizing that these are sciences. And with every science you need people who are experts and people of knowledge that spend their whole life that they have dedicated to learning this so that you can ensure that what you do and the manner in which you do it is something which is correct and it is in accordance with the laws and the rulings of the Sharia. And so that's something which is important. So for example, you may see the Quran scripted in two different ways in the Quran. In the same Quran, by the way, we're seeing in, we, we see in the same uh, script that it's written in two different ways. But also there's two different qira'at for the word Quran. Right? We read the word Quran as Quran, but in the reading of Ibn Kathir, he says Quran. Right? He says Quran, he doesn't say Quran. And so he misses out the Hamza, uh, the Hamza and he says Quran. Uh, for example, you will see in the word, in some words like, for example, Aqsa, Right, we read it as the word Aqsa, but if you were reading, for example, uh, with some of the Qur'an, like, like for example, Al-Kisai, he does it with an imara, Aqsa. And so the Ya script is more in line with the imara because the Sa sound is more closer to the Kasra than it is to the Fatha. And so you say Aqsa. Right? And so you get these examples throughout the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is extremely important to remember that therefore, when we study something like script, it's not just about the script, it is about tajweed, it is about qira'at, it is about these numerous sciences that are coming together and they're being studied all together. This is something which I think is extremely important for us to remember. Uh, it's something important for us to focus on. Um, I think it's, it's something which needs to be revived, generally speaking, in the Muslim world, but in particular in the West. You know, one of the, one of the, um, the dangers that I see is we don't really study or don't really hear about these sciences and then what happens is we become less and less familiar, which is a problem generally in the Muslim world, but especially in the West because we're already at a disadvantage. We're at a disadvantage already when it comes to just the basics like the Jweed and some of these other sciences. And so therefore the people that are going to take some time and effort to go further and, and study what are more nuanced sciences, what are more advanced sciences like Ar-Rasm and Ad-Dabd, Especially when you think about it and you think, why would I need to learn a rasm, for example, or a dabd, when it's been done, right? The hard work's been done, for example, I'll just take the, the, the mushaf that's been print, printed in Saudi Arabia, we'll take that one and we'll read it, and it's not really an issue anymore. And the issue isn't that it's not just an issue in terms of, like, I don't expect any of us to go and script the Qur'an or to come up, you know, to, 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 to write the Qur'an out in terms of its full script. Um, but at the same time, just to know and be aware and to understand the beauty of the Sharia in terms of and, and the and the and the beauty of the Book of Allah Azza wa Jal, the Quran in all of these different types of sciences is something which is extremely important. And by the way, it is you know the the countries, the Muslim countries, for example, that have uh, the methodology when it comes to memorizing the Quran of scripting, of writing it down. They make their students actually write out the Quran in the Quranic script in the 
script of the time of Uthman radiallahu an. This is something very common. You'll see in Mauritania, you see in Morocco, you see in a number of countries. What they do is when the child comes, they give him like a tablet. That's their tablet every day. They write out the verses a number of times and that's what they memorize from. And so in some ways, like they're, they're preserving both. They may not know the rules necessarily, but at least they have this mental image because of the writing of the Quran of how it's scripted. And so they will write that Quran in the way that it's meant to be uh, meant to be scripted. And that's something that most of us haven't had the opportunity to, to study or to learn or to be part of, even those of us that memorize the Quran, we never scripted the Quran. And for many of us, unless you have photographic memory, if someone was to try, tell us to write out the Quran in exactly the way uh, that it's been scripted in the book of Allah, we may struggle, especially when it comes to certain words and in certain verses. So Surah Fatiha may not be so difficult. Certain surahs may be easy because they're very familiar to us. But in other places in the Quran, I think we would genuinely struggle. And that's because the scripting of the Quran is unlike normal Arabic in the sense that today we write Arabic in, in the vast majority of it is in the way that we hear. So what you hear is what you write down. The Quranic script is kind of different in that sense somewhat. It's a bit more, uh, you know, it's kind of like has overlaps with other languages like English where not necessarily every word is written in the way that it is pronounced. And so likewise, the script of the Quran, not necessarily the case. And that's, as we said, because of the way that the Arabs used to write before, they had dots and vowels and all of these other markings that you find now within the Arabic language uh, in the way that it's written. And so that's something which you have to be conscious of, something which you have to be aware of. I think something which is good, uh, you know, one of the questions that someone asked in the last lesson was, what if we have young children, what do we do with them? I think just introducing this stuff step by step, getting them to understand and appreciate this in the way that you can, in the best way that you think is is reasonable and feasible to do so. I think that's a good thing to do for our children to understand that this is the script of the Quran and the script of the Quran isn't just about writing stuff down. It is something which has come from generation and to generation. It's something which has come all the way from the time of the Prophet And that's why, by the way, we have, you know, uh, in, in, in a lot of these places where they print the Quran, they have committees of scholars that oversee this. So the person that actually scripts the Quran, you know, the one that does the handwriting, the calligrapher, who's got the calligraphy and he does the writing on the Quran, most of those people are not scholars of Rasm. They're not scholars of Quranic script, they're not scholars of any of the Quranic sciences. They just are people who are experts in calligraphy, right? They've spent and dedicated their lives to learning the art of calligraphy. They're very good. You know, Allah has given them a natural talent and an ability to write. Like, for example, the Saudi Mus'haf and many of them are written by certain individuals well-known um, you know, they dedicated decades to, to perfecting that script in terms of the calligraphy and the writing, but they're not scholars of Qiraat and they're not scholars of Rasm, like in terms of the rulings of the government, the science and so on. They're not experts in Quran in that sense. They're just people who have nice handwriting and Allah Azzawajal blessed them in that way. And so the, these committees, they use them, these printing presses, use them for their skill. But what he writes and the way that he writes it isn't up to his own, it's not up to his own imagination, it's not up to his own creativity. He has to conform to the rules and the principles of the science and that's why it goes back to a legend a committee that looks over it meticulously looks over each and every single word make sure that it's correct and whatever and those are the obviously the you know the, the master uh, calligraphy plates that they do that then the printing press will will use in terms of the printing of the musahif and so you have scholars that 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 have dedicated years to doing this and they still dedicate time to doing this so uh, you know, the best example that I have, or the one that I'm most familiar with anyway, is the King Fahad printing complex in, in, in the city of Medina, 
uh, the city of our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, they have a massive complex for the publishing of the Quran and the printing of the Quran. <coughs> and all of these Qurans that we see that are printed from Saudi Arabia, whether it's the big size or the small size or the pocket size or whatever it may be, the green cover ones and the blue cover ones and so on, all of them come from that printing press in Medina. That printing press has a number of scholars, a number of imams uh, of Qira'ah that are the people who are in charge of academically ensuring that the Qur'an is correct in terms of the standards that it reaches in terms of a rasam script and making sure that issues like qira'at are taken into account and then the dhabd, the markings that are placed in that surah, uh, in the Qur'an, the waqf and ibtida and all of these issues that you will find. And so major scholars from Syria, from Saudi Arabia, from Egypt, from across the Muslim world came together, experts considered to be from the most knowledgeable of people in these sciences. I think if you were to read the list of those names, you know, I would be surprised if you knew most of them. The most famous of them probably is Sheikh Ali al-Hudhayfi, who is one of the imams of the Haram in Medina. He's also someone who's an expert in Qiraat and so on. He's kind of like probably the only one that's well known, and that's simply because he's one of the imams of the Haram. Um, I think the vast majority of those other names most people would not have come across, wouldn't have heard, wouldn't know who they are, despite their level of knowledge and despite their expertise in their particular fields. And so that's something which we need to bear in mind, that it's a great amount of deal, a great deal of effort and time that is placed therein. So, you know, I don't want to go off uh, too long on this particular issue. It's something which, as you can see, is something which I think is very important, something which we should spread, something which we should actively learn and, and seek to teach, especially if we want to be people who want to take our knowledge of the Book of Allah to the next level. Obviously, if you're someone who's, you know, uh, not really done Tajweed before, not really done Quran before, then you have to start step by step, you know, the fluency of your reading, learning basic Tajweed, practicing that Tajweed, making sure you can implement your rulings. That's a good foundation to start with. And then the other stuff that we're doing, it's just, it's just kind of in your sphere of consciousness. You know that it exists, you know that it's something there. Because one of the disheartening things is sometimes you have conversations with the Muslims and they think that this stuff is just like, you know, it's just someone sat down and just started to write because that's what they do. And they have no appreciation, no, uh, you know, nothing at all that, that even allows them to even think that there is something behind this other than someone just writing as a, for example, a novelist would write a novel or someone to stand to write a book. They think it's as simple as that. And so even if all you do is correct perceptions and misunderstandings, you're someone who just, you know, makes people aware that it's not so simple, not so easy as what they may suspect. I think that in and of itself is something which is, you know, which is good and something which is um, which is beneficial in the long term. So I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he gives us the ability to continue to seek knowledge and learn and to benefit. And that Allah Azza wa makes us from the scholars of the Quran and from the people who dedicate their lives to the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because that's essentially what these scholars do. Some of these scholars study with hundreds of teachers and they traveled the whole of the of the muslim world and they studied and they memorized and they read the books of the classical scholars such as adani and others who wrote on these particular topics and in these sciences and they've known those books and they've understood them and they've they've kind of like you know the proficient in them i think many people even among students of knowledge i would say uh, who don't necessarily look into this stuff and they're not really aware that they may be aware of the sciences that they exist but they wouldn't really know much more than that i think that that's something which i've also found even amongst students of knowledge students of knowledge and imams of masjids and so on they don't necessarily know this stuff because it's not something which they've taken the time and effort to learn and so it's there 
but they probably never heard of Adani or his books or are aware of the extensive uh, the extensive uh, principles that are that are there and present in each one of these particular sciences. So, um, as we said, inshallah ta'ala, today we continue with our tafsir and we are now on the tafsir of Surah At-Tariq, tafsir of Surah At-Tariq. And Surah At-Tariq, as we know, so we're kind of going into the second half of Juz Amma now. So we've pretty much just uh, just about or just over completed over the uh, half of Surah, uh, the half of, of Juz, the first half of Juz Amma. If you're going as we were from Surah An-Nas, so we're now in the second half of the Juz and Surah Tariq, which is the 86th chapter of the Quran, the 86th chapter of the Quran, and it is a surah which consists of 17 verses, 17 verses. So we begin as we usually do when it comes to our tafsir, and that is with some of the introductory issues regarding the surah. Uh, such as, for example, the name of the surah and its place of revelation and those types of issues. So we begin first with the names of the surah as we usually do. And this surah is something which you will find has uh, three names that are mentioned in the books of hadith and Quran and sciences of Quran and tafsir and so on. And as we know, usually the uh, differences between these names uh, sometimes can be big in terms of their completely different names and other times it's very minute or very small differences and this is an example of the latter so from the three names the first of them is the name by which we all know this surah and the way that we refer to this surah and that is surah al-tariq surah al-tariq and you will find this perhaps to be one of the most common uh, names given to this surah in the books of hadith and tafsir and sciences of quran and so on so for example from the scholars and authors of islam who refer to this surah by the name of al-tariq with the likes of Imam al-Bukhari and Imam al-Nasai rahimahumullah in their books of hadith in their collections of hadith and al-Hakim also in his collection of hadith and Ibn Abi Hatim in his book of tafsir as we've mentioned before Ibn Abi Hatim is perhaps someone who inshallah ta'ala at some point we will look at in terms of uh, the scholars of tafsir you know when we go through our specials and we do a biography of a scholar and the methodology of his tafsir I think Ibn Abi Hatim would be someone good to look at also because he's one relatively early uh, in terms of his um, of, of, of the time that he lived in, the time period. And so one of the early collections of full tafsir that we have is the tafsir of Ibn Abi Hatim. And it's a tafsir which I think is, uh, is is good to just be aware of and to know. And there's a number of like tafsirs that we need here, as I said before, like inshallah ta'ala, as we progress, we'll be doing methodologies and biographies of a number of the major scholars of tafsir in terms of the tafsirs that they authored and that they wrote on. Uh, but also, as I said before, one of the other things that we will start doing, inshallah, maybe from next year in our specials, uh, or maybe even towards the end of this year, is we will look at other scholars, other major scholars who aren't necessarily authors of tafsir, and so it's not necessarily a look at methodology and so, so on, but just their contribution to the Qur'an in terms of tafsir or the sciences of Qur'an uh, in particular, or in general rather. Uh, so people like, for example, Abu Amr al-Dani, you know, would be someone amazing to know about. I think Adani is someone that every student of Quran should be aware of in terms of his contribution to the Book of Allah Azza wa in terms of its khidmah, its service, and its study, and so on and so forth. Likewise, Imam al-Shatibi, rahimahullah ta'ala, someone that everyone should be aware of. Ibn al-Jazari, rahimahullah ta'ala. These are people who don't necessarily have books on tafsir, but they have books on all of the sciences that are related to the Quran. 
Um, and I think that's just something which is good also to know. So inshallah at some point, uh, in some way or another, that's something which we will look at in terms of looking into some of their biographies. So that, that won't be a methodological approach, just like biography. So maybe we'll take one or two in a lesson and we just kind of like look at some of the aspects of their life and what they did and how we can benefit from them, uh, inshallah ta'ala. So we have Al-Bukhari, we said Al-Nasai, we said Al-Hakim, we said Ibn Abi Hatim, we said Ibn Atiyah, Rahimahullah also, who someone we did a special about not, not too long ago. Ibn Atiyah also refers to it as Surah Tariq. Ibn Kathir, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, also refers to it as Surah Tariq. And one of the things that you will find is that the later the scholars are, in terms of the time period that they lived in, uh, then most likely the, time, the, the name that they choose for the Surah is the one that the Ummah kind of settled upon. And those are often the surah names that we still use till today. So if you look at, for example, the difference between someone like you know, Bukhari or Ibn Abi Hatim or even Al-Tabari, as opposed to someone like Ibn Kathir, Al-Shawkani and others, you will see that they normally settled upon a name. That name was the one that the Ummah was kind of using and still uses until our time, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking. Um, whereas uh, the early scholars, as we know, had more uh, leeway in, in the way that they would refer to these surahs and, and there would be more differences between one imam and one scholar than the next. So this is just some of the imams and scholars of tafsir that refer to it as Surah Al-Tariq. Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that in the uh, the majority of the books of tafsir that he came across and the books of the Sunnah and the Musahif, the old Musahif that was scripted, he found that the name of the surah was Surah Al-Tariq. And as we've said before, Ibn Ashur, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, this is a nice aspect of his tafsir, which I haven't seen uh, in any other tafsir. Uh, and it may be present in other tafsir, but from what I've come across, and that is at the beginning of the surah, he kind of likes to focus on the names of the surah and why they're named in that way. Is it something which was just known, or is it for one reason or another? And you know, as we know, for, for most of these surahs, like for example, Al-Tariq and Al-A'la and Ghashi and so on, one of the major reasons that they're given those names is because it's taken from the first verse. So it's something which will be in the first verse, and so that name just sticks for the or sticks uh, with the surah. And this is this would be another example. Surah Al-Tariq, as we know, is found in the first verse. Another name by which this surah is known, or the second name by which it is known, is that it is referred to as Wasamai wa Tariq, which is the entirety of the first verse. And as I mentioned before, um, some scholars I've come across recently say that rather than calling this a name it's just like a description like he's describing the surah as opposed to giving it a name um, you know it's like you say for example the book that begins with and you kind of mention the first line or the first chapter or something so it's similar to that in in some way uh, but either way it's it's, it's it's one of the ways by which the surah is referred so even if it's not a name maybe we call them in the way that the surahs are referred to as opposed to names if that's more accurate, but one of the ways that it's referred to is Wasamai wa Tariq. And from the Imams of Islam that use this is Abu Ubaidah uh, and Abdul Razak, Imam Abdul Razak in his in his tafsir, and Abdullah ibn Mubarak, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, and Imam Al Tabari, Rahimahumullah Ta'ala Jma'in. So all of these scholars refer to this surah as being Surah Wasamai wa Tariq. The third surah by which it is it is known is As-Sama Wa-Tariq. So without the first wow. As-Sama Wa-Tariq. As-Sama'i Wa-Tariq. Um, and this is, uh, this is something which uh, is referred to Ibn Ashur 
Rahimahullah Ta'ala is the one who mentions this and he says, he mentions the narration of Ahmad ibn Hanbal, al-Imam Ahmad Rahimahullah, a narration that goes back to Abu Huraira radiallahu an. And he says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi used to recite this surah in the Isha' prayer. And he says he would recite As-Sama' that al-Buruj and As-Sama' wa-Tariq. And this is how he refers to them in that narration. And so he calls them As-Sama' instead of Was-Sama'. So he says As-Sama' that al-Buruj and As-Sama' wa-Tariq. And so Ibn Ashtur says that it seems like this is a name that was also used. And that is that it was referred to as As-Sama'i Wat-Tariq without the first wow. And we know that the first wow is wow al-Qasim. It is a wow of an oath that is taken in the Arabic language. That seems to be the case uh, that he's referring to in that particular narration. And obviously that's something which inshallah ta'ala we will, um, you know, we will, we will speak about as we, as we progress. So these are the three names by which this surah is known. Surah Al-Tariq, which is the one that we all know, know, know it now by. Uh, number two, Was-Sama'i Wa-Tariq, which is the entirety of the second verse. And the third one is something which Ibn Ashur mentions, Rahimullah Ta'ala. I'm not sure necessarily if that's considered to be a name uh, per se, or a different name, or a different way that the surah is referred to. I don't know, to be honest. But anyway, he mentions it, and so that's why I've brought it to your attention as well. And he uses it basically from this narration that Imam Ahmad Ta'ala has from the authority of Abu Huraira radiallahu an. When it comes to the revelation of this surah uh, and whether it is a pre-Hijri or post-Hijri surah, whether it's a Makki or Madani surah, then the position of the vast majority of the Imams of Islam is that it is a Makki surah, that it is a Makki surah to the extent that a number of the Imams of Islam said it is by ijma' by consensus that it is a Makki Surah. The Makki Surah, as we've said before numerous times, means anything that was revealed before the Hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ to Medina. And so therefore it would be a Meccan Surah. The, uh, from those scholars that claimed that there was ijma' upon this issue is Ibn Atiyah, rahimahullah ta'ala, Ibn Atiyah in his tafsir, he says, وَهِيَ مَكِّيَّةٌ this surah is a Makki surah and there is no difference of opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir in this regard. Also from amongst those um, those scholars that claim that there was ijma' on this point is Ibn al-Jawzi. Ibn al-Jawzi as we know has a book of tafsir and Ibn al-Jawzi lived around the same time period as Ibn Atiyah. So he, uh, he died after him maybe about a few decades. But generally speaking, around the same time period, so there's not a major difference, not a difference of centuries. This may be a difference of three, four, five decades. So he lived around the same century as Ibn Atiyah. So Ibn Jawzi, rahimahullah ta'ala, also said, All of it is a Makki surah by the ijma' of the scholars of tafsir. And likewise, an Imam al-Shawkani, rahimahullah ta'ala, he also mentioned in his tafsir, he said, this is a Makki surah without a difference of opinion. And this seems to be the um, the position of some of the companions. So for example, they mentioned the narration uh, that is collected by the likes of Al-Bayhaqi and Ibn Mardawih and others that Ibn Abbas, Abdullah Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah said concerning this particular surah, he said that it was revealed in Mecca, that it was revealed in Mecca. And then there are other scholars who said that it is a Makki surah also, not necessarily saying that it is by ijma' or by consensus, but they stated that it is a Makki surah. 
um, and that is uh, found in many of the books of Tafsir. So, for example, Ad-Dani says that it is a Makki Surah Ibn Hazm. Rahimahullah says that it is a Makki Surah Al-Baghawi and Ibn Kathir. They say that it's a Makki Surah and so on and so forth. And so the list is quite long and extensive. And so is the position of the scholars, therefore, of Tafsir, that it is a Makki Surah. Surah Al-Tariq is a Makki Surah. Um, one of the things that you will find also in the books of Tafsir is that some of them mentioned a narration regarding the cause of revelation of this surah, the cause of revelation of this surah. And you will find it in a number of the books of Tafsir and the books uh, of, of the Sunnah as well, or narrations, uh, that mention the reason as to why this surah was revealed. And it is said that it's revealed concerning something which was said by Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now we know that Abu Talib was the uncle, public defender of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He strove uh, for many years to protect the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam from the anger and the wrath of Quraysh and the harm that they wanted to do to him. And so it is said that he was referring to or that this surah was revealed concerning something which he said. The narration says uh, that one day the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam or Abu Talib rather came to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam one day and the Prophet gave to him to eat and drink as his uncle. He, he fed him and he gave him milk and bread. Gave him milk and bread. And whilst he was sitting eating, he saw a shooting star or a falling star. And it looked like the star was full of water and fire. That it was a star that was full of water and fire. So it was a burning star or a, or a fiery star and it also looked like that it had water surrounding it. So Abu Talib became uh, surprised by this or he became shocked by this, became slightly afraid by this. And he asked the question, what is this? Right? What is that? And so the Prophet ﷺ replied, هذا نجم رمي به وهو آية من آيات الله تعالى. This is a star that has been shot. And it is a sign from the signs of Allah Azza wa Jal. So a shooting star it is a sign from the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is something which, which amazed uh, Abu Talib. He was impressed by this. And so Allah Azza wa Jal then revealed the surah was samai wa tariq. Meaning that the tariq as we will come on to is the star that appears during the night and is hidden during the day. So that's something which you will find commonly in the books of of tafsir and, 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 and the books of uh, narrations, that this is one of the, uh, and as we know, like scholars have written on this topic of causes of revelation, and maybe that's something, inshallah ta'ala, we will do as a special, uh, if we haven't already done it. I don't remember doing it, um, unless someone can correct me or remind me whether we've done a special on the causes of revelation, asbab al nuzul. I think that would be something to look, uh, to look into and it would be something interesting, simply because you have like different methodologies with regards to that science. So some scholars, as we know, are quite strict because the only way that you can know that it's a cause of revelation is to have a narration. So some of the companions must see so, or you know, an incident must take place with the Prophet ﷺ or some of the tabi'een and others say that this is the cause of revelation. And when it comes to these types of narrations, how strict are we? Is it like seerah where we can be you know, slightly more uh, more easy going when it comes to the narrations because as we know when it comes to seerah and generally the life of the Prophet the scholars were a lot more easy going in terms of 
the uh, level of, of authenticity that they were willing to accept. And that's because seerah is, is incidents, it's history, it's stories. It doesn't affect the sharia, it's not about halal or haram. It's not going to affect your worship of Allah Azza wa It's not going to legislate any act of worship or take away something from you. It's just an incident that took place in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu a story. And so when it came to those stories, because they don't necessarily deal with halal and haram and these types of issue of aqeedah and so on, the scholars weren't as stringent and weren't as strict. And so it's just something which, you know, even if it's not 100% true, it's okay. And, and then you find a spectrum of scholars on that scale. Some will be like, no, no, you know, we can't just like let everything in. Others will, will mention stuff which, which does sound strange and, and sounds far-fetched but they'll still mention it, and others kind of try to balance between the two. And you'll see that's a common methodology in all of the books of Sirah. Is Tafsir similar to that in terms of these types of issues of causes of revelation? Because as we know, causes of revelation don't change the ruling of the verse or its application. So they don't legislate anything. And it's not specific to that individual, that it only applies to them and so on. So even if you don't know the cause of revelation, the verse in terms of its meaning, in terms of the rulings that are derived from it, if there are rulings that can be derived from it, in terms of the benefits that you take from it, all of those continue to be the same. Does it make a difference? So therefore, is something like tafsir in that regard, you know, more easygoing and more or less stringent? And that's something that you will find again, a differing positions amongst the scholars and a spectrum in terms of then how to balance between those issues. So some scholars, for example, when it came to cause of revelation, they mentioned loads of narrations. Like for them, there's like thick books on all of the causes of revelation concerning the book of Allah Azza wa Jalla. Other scholars were more strict when it came to authenticity and they applied to it the same criteria that they would apply to hadith of ahkam or halal and haram. And so with that, they became more strict. And because they were more strict, they said that all oh, these narrations are inauthentic. They have weakness in them. And therefore, those causes of revelation cannot be substantiated as being the actual cause of revelation and so on. But anyway, that's a discussion which I think is is interesting to have. And I hope that inshallah ta'ala, therefore at some point, uh, you know, it's something which we will which we will discuss. And it's important generally as a methodology to understand, uh, as we often say, uh, to understand the different approaches that the scholars have when it comes to these types of issues. So scholars will come to a science that seems like it's a science that should be uh, should be relatively well known or easy to deal with, and they have different approaches when it comes when it comes to that. Uh, and it's the same that you will see, for example, in the in the discussion of a hadith themselves. So, for example, the differences between a hadith that are to do with aqidah and iman and ahkam, as opposed to a hadith that are to do with fadail, which is virtues. So, as we know, a number of the scholars of the Salaf were were slightly more easygoing when it came to a hadith of virtues. If the hadith speaks about a certain virtue for an act of worship, they're more concerned about is the act of worship legislated? Is it correct? If it is, like for example, salah, if it is like sadaqah, if it is like fasting, if it is like hajj, these are legislated and they're well known. And the hadith isn't dealing with rulings. It's not saying change something or add something or remove something from the act of worship. It's just saying that if you pray or you fast or you give this type of sadaqah, you will get X amount of virtue, X amount of reward, such and such will be given to you. Those types of issues they were easy going with because maybe it is, maybe it's not. And the general principle is, as we know, that Allah Azza wa may give as reward as He pleases subhanahu wa ta'ala. Every good deed is multiplied by 10 up to 700, up to whatever Allah Azza wa wishes to give. So for you to think that you may get a certain virtue for that, 
as long as you're performing the action and it's done correctly in legislation of the Sharia, they would say it's okay. Other scholars would say no. Why do we need to go through things which are inauthentic? The Prophet said, anything that you need in terms of your religion, I have left for you. No good is there except that I pointed you towards it, no evil except that I warned you against it. So if that is the case, then why do we need to go through a hadith that may be inauthentic, may have weakness in it? You know, we can't necessarily know uh, with a good deal or degree of certainty that is something which the Prophet actually said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So therefore, these virtues may not necessarily be the case. It may not be that you get this type of reward or this type of blessing or this type of virtue for performing this particular action. All of this stuff you will see, therefore, within the uh, statements and the positions of the scholars of Islam. And therefore, that's something which I would say, uh, you know, is something which is worth studying. Not not from the uh, wider, you know, that, that wider discussion exists, but for our point of view, as students of tafsir, as students of Quran, uh, when it comes to sciences that are related to our field and sphere of study. So, for example, something like Asbab al-Nuzul, which I think in and of itself is a very interesting, uh, you know, a very interesting discussion to be had in that way. And also to look at how the scholars uh, dealt with this topic and what they considered to be a cause of revelation and what they didn't consider to be a cause of revelation, what they would, uh, you know, what they would say in terms of is something, can something have multiple causes of revelation? Can a single verse be revealed more than once, multiple causes of revelation? Uh, is it something which is only for one? And, and you see examples of this, for example, within the Sunnah and sometimes authentic hadith that you will find in Bukhari and Muslim that seem to point to two different things um, and we will give examples of this inshallah ta'ala when we come to that ta'ala. so sometimes it seems like there's two different stories going on each one of them is saying the verse was revealed for this so which one was it revealed for was it both incidents took place very close together and then the verse was revealed to so some of the companion story was due to one other story was due to the other or is it a case of repetition or what what is it or is it abrogation or or whatever and even that statement where the companion says that this verse was revealed as a result of, is that a definitive statement that that's what the actual cause of revelation? Or is the companion simply saying that an incident took place, this revelation then came slightly after it, and he's just making a determination by, and, uh, by himself. And so the actual wording of the narration of the cause of revelation, the actual, uh, the actual incident itself, is quite important in determining whether it's actually revealed specifically for an incident that took place or it's more general in terms of you know this was the general thing that was going on and then Allah revealed a verse so for example the difference between something like the story of the slander of Mother Aisha radiallahu anha we know that Allah revealed a number of verses in Surah An-Nur to declare her innocence that's like one example right and that's very distinct very clear very specific and that whole story is is mentioned in in some sufficient detail in the narration of Aisha radiallahu anha collected in Bukhari and in other than Bukhari and other collections of hadith and it's a very detailed discussion and so therefore one could probably say that that's like a type of specific example of a cause of revelation as opposed to something which is more general like this one here like this one here which is the story of Abu Talib um, and, and this would be an example of one where the scholars differ many of the scholars don't you know don't accept this to necessarily be the cause of revelation for Surah Al-Tariq because they have issues in terms of its uh, of its authenticity and, and so on and so forth. So again, this is a discussion inshallah ta'ala which we will have when we come to that particular uh, to that particular point inshallah ta'ala. 
uh, when we if we ever get around to doing a special on that particular subject matter inshallah ta'ala the um so so anyway but that is nevertheless something that you will find that this is the cause of revelation uh, for the surah and it's something that you'll find in the books of tafsir so i think you know it's important to mention it just so that we're aware that it is something which is out there and exists a surah al-tariq is a surah that is mentioned in the sunnah it is mentioned in the sunnah and um by by you know by, by the way that we mentioned it before so uh, two ways or two or three maybe narrations predominantly in which it is mentioned the first is the one that we mentioned already uh, when we're speaking about the names of the surah and that is the narration of Abu Hurairah an, in the Muslim of Imam Ahmad ta'ala, that this is one of the surahs the Prophet وسلم, would recite in the Isha prayer so we know as we've mentioned before that the Prophet وسلم, his general practice was when it came to when the companions were giving us the length of his recitation that when he came to the Fajr prayer, he would read from the Tiwar al-Mufassal. Mufassal, as we said, are the surahs that begin from Surah Qaf all the way to Surah Al-Nas. And then those Mufassal surahs are divided into three. We have the long Mufassal, the middle Mufassal, the short Mufassal. The long Mufassal are the surahs from Surah Qaf until the end of the 29th Juz, Surah Al-Mursad. The middle Mufassal begin from the beginning of Juz Amma, Surah Al-Naba, and they continue all the way to the end of Surah Al-Layl and then the small Mufassal or the short Mufassal are from Surah Al-Duha until Surah Al-Nas so we know that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam the general hadith are authentic that speak about his general length of recitation is that in the Isha Salah he would read from the middle Mufassal which is from Surah Al-Naba to Surah Al-Layl and therefore Surah Al-Tariq would be within the, that grouping of Surahs so we have that narration of Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu, and that's a, again a narration that scholars have some discussion as to its authenticity or lack thereof. The second narration is the narration uh, that is in the Sunan of Abi Dawood, and that is authentic, uh, and it is the hadith of Jabir ibn Samura radiallahu and he says concerning those, again, uh, again about the same two surahs, which is surah al-Tariq and al-Buruj, al-Sama'i wa tariq and al-Sama'i dhati buruj he says that they were read, that the Prophet would read those types of surahs, those length of surahs, in Dhuhr and Asr prayer. So not in the Isha prayer, but in Dhuhr and Asr. And that is why if you look in the books of Fiqh, they will often say that the Prophet used to read from the long Mufassal for Fajr, from the short Mufassal for Maghrib, and for the remaining prayers from the middle Mufassal. The remaining prayers being Dhuhr, Asr and Isha. And they include Dhuhr and Asr as well, because that's something which is mentioned in some narrations like this hadith of Jabir, Ibn Samura radiallahu anhu. And so therefore, Dhuhr, Asr, Isha are similar in terms of their length. And they are obviously all, as we know, four raka'ah prayers. So that's the second hadith in which it is mentioned uh, by name. The third hadith that is also mentioned is in one of the narrations of that story that we've mentioned now a number of times, the hadith of Mu'adh radiallahu anhu, when he came and he led the people in salah and he prolonged the salah, made it a very long salah. And one of the people who was praying behind him left because he was reading from something like Baqarah. And he came and he complained the next day to the Prophet ﷺ about the length of the salah of Mu'adh radiallahu anhu. And the Prophet ﷺ said to Mu'adh, don't be a fitna for people. Don't try and test people in terms of their ability to come and stand and participate in the congregational prayer. But if you must, then recite surahs like, and he gave them examples. And we've mentioned these narrations before, one of those narrations says that the example that he gave him was of Surah Al-Buruj and Surah Al-Tariq. 
uh, you know, which again goes to the Qusat al-Mufassal, which again goes to the middle Mufassal surahs. So those three narrations, all of them, particularly speaking about the hadith or the uh, speaking about the salah of the Prophet ﷺ in its length, all of them mention Surah Al-Tariq and as I said, you know, with differing levels of what the scholars to be more authentic or less so. And then the fourth example of this would be the example that we just gave in the beginning or in the, in the issue of the cause of revelation that is mentioned as being the cause of revelation uh, in the incident with the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Talib. So those, therefore, those possibly four times that it is mentioned in the Sunnah, and there may be other times as well that I uh, that I didn't come across, but primarily these three, the ones that I mentioned, it is mentioned in the context of the length of the Salah of the Prophet ﷺ. And this Surah, as we know, consists of 17 verses, 17 verses. So I think, inshallah ta'ala, we will conclude uh, here today, um, rather than starting the tafsir of the Surah in, in just a few minutes that we have left. Um, and so therefore, to, to just give a brief recap, the Surah is known by three names, Surah Al-Tariq, Surah Al-Sama'i Wa-Tariq, and Surah As-Sama'i Wa-Tariq, As-Sama'i Wa-Tariq, which some of the scholars also mention. The Surah is a Makki Surah revealed before the Hijrah, therefore, and that is considered to be the position of the vast majority, if not one of the scholars of Tafsir, a number of them said that is with Ijma' or by consensus. The Surah, it is said that there is a cause of revelation, and that is that Abu Talib was once with the Prophet ﷺ. He saw a shooting star and he was amazed by it. And he asked, What is that type of star? And the Prophet said, That's a sign from the signs of Allah and Allah then revealed Surah Al Tariq. And there is a Surah that is mentioned in the Sunnah, in at least uh, one. Uh, authentic narration and that is the hadith of Jabir ibn Samurah radiyallahu anhu the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa will read that type of length of surah in his dhuhr and asr salah and it is a surah that consists of 17 verses so with that inshallah ta'ala we come to the end of today's lesson barakallahu feekum wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh